Section 2 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Regeneration, Part 2. The main principle, as before stated, which is assumed by those who make this charge, is that we can only regard the soul as to its substance on the one hand and its actions on the other. If, therefore, there be any change wrought in the soul other than of its acts, it must be a physical change. And if any tendency either to sin or holiness exist prior to choice, it is a positive existence, a real entity. Thus the charge of physical depravity and physical regeneration is fairly made out. We are constrained to confess that if the premises are correct, the conclusions, revolting as they are, and affecting as they do the fair names of so large a portion of the Christian church, are valid. The principle itself, however, we believe to be a gratuitous assumption. It is inconsistent with the common, and as we believe correct, idea of habits, both connatural and acquired. The word habit, habitus, was used by the old writers precisely in the same sense as principle by President Edwards, as explained above, or disposition as used and explained by President Dwight. That there are such habits or dispositions which can be resolved neither into essential attributes nor acts, we maintain to be the common judgment of mankind. Let us take for illustration an instance of an acquired habit of the lowest kind, the skill of an artist. He has a soul with the same essential attributes as other men. His body is composed of the same materials and the same law regulates the obedience of his muscular actions to his mind. By constant practice he has acquired what is usually denominated skill, an ability to go through the processes of his art with greater facility, exactness and success than ordinary men. Take this man while asleep or engaged in any indifferent occupation. You have a soul and body not differing in any of their essential attributes from those of other men. Still, there is a difference. What is it? Must it be either a real existence, an entity, an act, or nothing? It cannot be an entity, for it is acquired, and it will hardly be maintained that a man can acquire a new essential attribute. Nor is it an act for the man has his skill when it is not exercised. Yet there is certainly something which is the ground of certainty that when called to go through the peculiar business of his art, he will do it with an ease and rapidity impossible for common men. It is as impossible not to admit that this ground or reason exists in order to account for the effect, as it is not to admit the existence of the soul to account for its exercises. By constant practice, a state of mind and body has been produced, adapted to secure these results, and which accounts for their character. But this is the definition of principle or habit, as given above. A single circumstance is here wanting which is found in other habits, and that is, there is not the tendency or proneness to those particular acts to which this state of mind is adapted. This difference, however, arises not from any difference in the habits themselves, but from the nature of the faculties in which, so to speak, they inhere. A principle in the will, in its largest sense, including all the active powers, is not only a state of mind adapted to certain acts, but prone to produce them. This is not the case, at least to the same degree, with intellectual habits. Both classes, however, come within the definition given by President Edwards and Dr. Dwight, a state of mind or foundation for any particular kind of exercise of the faculties of the soul. 
The same remarks may be made with regard to habits of a more purely intellectual character. A man, by devoting himself to any particular pursuit, gradually acquires a facility in putting forth the mental exercises which it requires. This implies no change of essence in the soul, and it is not merely an act which is the result of this practice. The result, whatever it is, is an attribute of the man under all circumstances, and not merely when engaged in the exercises whence the habit was acquired. But to come nearer to the case in hand, we say a man has a malignant disposition or an amiable disposition. What is to be understood by these expressions? Is it merely that he often indulges malignant or amiable feelings? Or is it not rather that there is an habitual proneness or tendency to their indulgence? Surely the latter. But if so, the principle stated above, that we can regard the soul only as to its substance or its actions, cannot be correct. For the result of a repetition of acts on the same kind is an abiding tendency, which is itself neither an act, eminent or imminent, nor an entity. Here, then, is the soul with its essential attributes and habitual tendency to certain exercises and the exercises themselves. The tendency is not an act, nor an active state of the feelings in question. For it would be a contradiction to say that a man whose heart was glowing with paternal affection, or filled for the time with any other amiable feeling, had at the same moment the malignant feelings in an active state although there might exist the greatest proneness to their exercise. We have seen no analysis of such dispositions which satisfies us that they can be reduced to acts. For it is essential to the nature of an act that it should be a matter of consciousness. This is true of those which are imminent acts of the will or ultimate choices by which a fixed state of the affections is meant to be expressed as well as of all others. But a dispositional principle, as explained above, is not a matter of consciousness. A man may be aware that he has a certain disposition, as he is aware of the existence of his soul, from the consciousness of its acts, but the disposition itself is not a subject of direct consciousness. It exists when the man is asleep or in a swoon, and unconscious of anything. Neither can these habits be with any propriety called a choice, or permanent affection for in many cases they are a mere proneness to acts which have their foundation in a constitutional principle of the mind. Our object at present is merely to show that we must admit that there are mental habits which cannot be resolved either into essential attributes of the soul, fixed preferences, or subordinate acts, and consequently that those who believe in dispositions prior to all acts do not necessarily maintain that such dispositions are of the essence of the soul itself. If it be within the compass of the divine power to produce in us that which by constant exercise we can produce in ourselves, then a holy principle or habit may be the result of the Spirit's influence in regeneration, without any physical change having been wrought. But it is not only objected that regeneration is a physical change, if anything beyond a change in the exercises of the soul is affected, but it is said that the thing contended for is utterly unintelligible, incapable of definition or explanation. We are ready to acknowledge that it admits of no other explanation than that which is derived from stating its effects, and referring to cases of analogous kind. There is in all men a social principle, as it is called, which is something else than a desire to live in society, because it is con-natural, as may be inferred from its universality, 
there is a tendency in all men to love their children, which is something besides loving them. There is a tendency in man also to sympathize in the sufferings of others, etc. It may be said, these are all constitutional tendencies implanted in our nature. This is very true, but does saying this enable us to understand their nature? May it not be objected to those who employ this language, you are using words without meaning. What do you know of a social principle distinct from the actual desire to live in society, or prior to its exercise? What idea can you form of a principle of self-love, except actually loving oneself? Are we then to deny that there are any such original propensities or tendencies as these implanted in our nature, because we cannot directly conceive of them? Yet Dr. Cox says, in reference to this subject, By holy principle, I mean love to God, and by love to God, I mean actually loving Him. On the same principle, he might deny the existence of any of the original dispositions or tendencies of the soul, for they are as incapable of being defined as the holy principle which is produced in regeneration. The soul itself is in the same predicament. We know nothing of it but from our consciousness of its acts. And if the objection which we are now considering be valid against the existence of principles prior to acts, then it is valid against the existence of the soul. We are conscious only of its exercises, and therefore some philosophers and theologians tell us we are not authorized to go any further. The existence of a substance apart from the exercises is not necessary to account for their existence, and therefore is a gratuitous assumption. An assumption, too, of the being of something which we are incapable of defining, explaining, or even conceiving. The reply which Dr. Cox would make to this reasoning is probably the same that we should be disposed to make to his objection against the existence of holy principles prior to holy acts. For the mind, as instinctively, seeks a reason for the choice which the soul makes in loving God, as it does for the various ideas and exercises of which it is constantly conscious. And we should probably be as little satisfied with the reasons which Dr. Cox could assign to account for this choice, as he would be with those of the defenders of the exercise scheme to account for these exercises without resorting to a thinking substance. If he were to say that the effect is produced by the Holy Spirit, we should answer that this can only be done in one of three ways that we can conceive of. First, either by his direct agency producing the choice, in which case it would be no act of ours, or secondly, by addressing such motives to our constitutional and natural principle of self-love as should induce us to make the choice, in which case there would be no morality in the act. Or thirdly, by producing such a relish for the divine character that the soul, as spontaneously and immediately embraces God as its portion, as it rejoices in the perception of beauty, the thing contended for is not more unintelligible than a hundred things of like nature. Taste is the ready perception and quick feeling of natural beauty. That is, these are its effects, but no one can directly conceive of it, as it is an attribute of the mind, either original or acquired. It is absolutely certain, however, that the man who does thus readily perceive and feel the beauty of natural objects has a quality of mind which a clown does not possess and we should be astonished to hear anyone maintain that there was no such thing as taste, but the exercise. By taste I mean the love of beauty, and by love of beauty I mean actually loving it, and that is an act and not a principle. 
But why does one man see and feel a beauty in certain objects when others do not? Is there no difference between the clown and the man of refinement but in their acts? Is any man satisfied by being told that one delights in beauty and the other does not, that it is in vain to ask why? The fact is enough, and the fact is all. There is no difference in the state of their minds antecedent to their acts. There can be no such thing as a principle of taste or sense of beauty distinct from the actual love of beauty. We are disposed to think that no man can believe this, that the constitution of our nature forces us to admit that if one man, under all circumstances and at all times, manifests this quick sensibility to natural beauty and another does not, there is some difference between the two besides their acts, that there is some reason why, when standing before the same picture, one is filled with pleasure and the other is utterly insensible. We cannot help believing that one has taste, a quality, principle or inward sense, which the other does not possess. It matters not what it may be called, it is the ground or reason of the diversity of their exercises, which lies back of the exercises themselves, and must be assumed to account for the difference of their nature. Now, there is moral as well as natural beauty, and it is no more unintelligible that there should be a sense or taste for the one than for the other. The perfect character of God, when exhibited to different men, produces delight and desire in some, repugnance in others. We instinctively ask why. Why do some perceive and delight in his moral beauty, while others do not? The answer, some love and others do not, is no answer at all. It is merely saying the same thing in other words. There must be some reason why one perceives this kind of beauty, to which others are blind. Why one is filled with love the moment it is presented, and the other with repugnance and this reason must lie back of the mere exercise of this affection, must be something besides the act itself, and such as can account for its nature. It may be said, however, that the cases are not analogous, that the emotion excited by beauty is involuntary, while moral objects address themselves to the voluntary affections, and that it is admitted that there is not only something back of each exercise of love, but we are told distinctly what it is, viz. the soul with its essential attributes, its ultimate or supreme choice, or dominant affection, and the object in view of the mind. Accordingly, it is easily accounted for that when the character of God is presented, one man is filled with love, another with repugnance. The reason of the difference in these acts does indeed lie back of the acts themselves, for it is found in the ultimate or supreme choice of the different individuals. But how is this to be accounted for? If there is no necessity for accounting for the particular character of the first or ultimate choice, if so it must needs be called, there is no need of accounting for the others. The difficulty is not at all met by this statement. It is only pushed back from the secondary and subordinate to the primary and dominant preference. There it returns. The question still is why does the soul of one man make this supreme choice of God, or, in other words, love him, while another sets his affections on the world. There is precisely the same necessity for assuming some ground or reason for the nature of the first choice, as for any acts subordinate and subsequent to it. Let us suppose two individuals called into existence, in the full maturity of their faculties, each has a soul with the same constitutional powers or essential attributes. 
The one is filled with delight the moment the character of God is presented, and the other is not. Or the one loves his maker as soon as the idea of his excellence is presented, the other does not. According to this theory, there is no reason for this difference. There is nothing back of the first act of choice that is not common to both. If, instead of two individuals, we suppose two millions, one portion having their affections spontaneously called forth on their first view of their maker, the other unaffected, we have only a greater number of effects without a cause, but the case is the same. It will not do to answer that the choice is made under the influence of the desire of happiness, for this being common to all is no reason for the difference of the result, which is the very thing to be accounted for. To say that the choice is made under the influence of the desire of happiness is only to say that when the character of God is presented, it gives pleasure. But the same character is presented in both cases, the same desire exists in both, yet in one it gives pleasure, is an object of desire, in the other not. This is the fact which is left entirely unaccounted for on the theory in question, and for which the mind as instinctively seeks a cause as it does for any other effect. To account for the difference from the nature of agency is to assume the liberty of indifference. For if the choice be made prior to the rising of desire towards the object, then it is made in indifference and is of no moral character. If the desire rise, it is love, which is the very thing to be accounted for. We are at a loss to see how this theory is to be reconciled with the Calvinists' doctrine on the will, which is not peculiar to Edwards, but constituted the great dividing line between Calvinists and Arminians from the beginning. We feel, therefore, a necessity for assuming that there is something back of the first moral act, besides the soul and its essential attributes, which will account for the nature of that act which constitutes the reason why, in the case supposed, the soul of the one individual rose immediately to God and the other did not, and the something assumed in this case is no more indefinite and undefinable than the constitutional propensity to live in society, to love our children, or the mental quality called taste, all which are assumed from a necessity not more imperative than that which requires a holy principle to account for the delight experienced in view of the character of God. And if our Maker can endow us not only with the general susceptibility of love, but also with a specific disposition to love our children, if he can give us a discernment and susceptibility of natural beauty, he may give us a taste for spiritual loveliness. And if that taste by reason of sin is vitiated and perverted, he may restore it by the influences of his spirit in regeneration. Neither, therefore, the objection that what is not an act must be an essential attribute, nor the unintelligible nature of a principle of nature is, in our view, any valid objection to the common doctrine on regeneration. There is a third objection, however, to this doctrine, and that is that it renders the sinner excusable because it makes regeneration to consist in something else than the sinner's own act. This objection, as it seems to us, can only be valid on one or the other of two grounds. The first is that the common doctrine supposes sin to be a physical defect and regeneration physical change. And the second is that a man is responsible solely for his acts, or that there can be no moral principle anterior to moral action. With regard to the first, it is enough to say that no physical change, according to the constant declaration of Calvinistic writers, is held to take place in regeneration, and that no such change is implied in the production of a holy principle, as we have already endeavoured to show. 
The second ground is inconsistent with the common notions of men on the nature of virtue, and if true would render the commencement of holiness or regeneration impossible. It is according to the universal feeling and judgment of men that the moral character of an act depends upon the motive with which it is done. This is so obviously true that Reed and Stuart and almost all other advocates of the liberty of indifference readily admit it. And so do the advocates of the theory on which this objection is founded, with regard to all moral acts excepting the first. All acts of choice, to be holy, must proceed from a holy motive, excepting the first holy choice which constitutes regeneration, that may be from the mere desire of happiness or self-love. We confess that this strikes us as very much like a relinquishment of the whole system. For how is it conceivable that anything should be essential to the very nature of one act as holy, that is not necessary to another? For how is it conceivable that anything should be essential to the very nature of one act as holy, that is not necessary to another? Is not this saying that that on which the very nature of a thing depends may be absent and yet the thing remain the same? Is it not saying that that which makes an act what it is and gives it its character may be wanting or altered, and yet the character of the act be unaffected? It is the motive which gives the moral character to the act. If the motive is good, the act is good. If the motive is bad, the act is bad. If the motive is indifferent, so is the act. The act has no character apart from the motive. This, it seems, is admitted with regard to all moral acts excepting the first. But the first act of a holy kind is an act of obedience, as well as all subsequent acts of the same kind. How then is it conceivable that the first act of obedience performed from the mere desire of happiness or self-love can be holy when no other act of the same kind and performed from the same motive either is or can be? How does its being first alter its very nature? It is still nothing more than an act done for self-gratification and cannot be a holy act. It is said we must admit this from the necessity of the case or acknowledge that there can be holiness before moral action. We prefer admitting the latter and believing that God created man upright and not that he made himself so. That there was a disposition or relish or taste for holiness before there was any holy act, which to us is far more reasonable than that an act is holy because the first of a series, which if performed from the same motive at a different point of the line, would have a different character. The grand objection, we know, that is made to all this is that holy beings have fallen, which it is maintained would be impossible if the ground here assumed is correct. If the character of an act depends on its motive, a sinful act cannot be performed by a being in whom sin does not already exist, and consequently neither the fallen angels nor Adam could ever have apostatized. We think, however, that there is a broad difference between the commencement of holiness and the commencement of sin, and that more is necessary for the former than for the latter. An act of obedience, if it is performed under the mere impulse of self-love, is virtually no act of obedience. It is not performed with any intention to obey, for that is holy and cannot, according to the theory, precede the act. But an act of disobedience performed from the desire of happiness is rebellion. The cases are surely widely different. If to please myself I do what God commands, it is not holiness, but if to please myself I do what he forbids, it is sin. 
Besides, no creature is immutable. Though created holy, the taste for holy enjoyments may be overcome by a temptation sufficiently insidious and powerful, and a selfish motive or feeling excited in the mind. Neither is a sinful character immutable. For, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth may be so clearly presented and so effectually applied as to produce that change which is called regeneration, that is, as to call into existence a taste for holiness, so that it is chosen for its own sake and not merely as a means of happiness. It is evident, therefore, that the theory which denies the possibility of moral distinctions being carried back to the acts of choice forces its advocates to adopt the opinion that the first holy act is specifically different from all others. That Adam was not created holy, but by choosing God made himself holy, and that this choice, though made with no holy motive or intention, but merely from a desire of happiness, has a moral character. This, we think, not only contradictory to the express declaration of Scripture, which says that man was created in the image of his Maker, which includes his moral as well as his natural image, as we are taught in the New Testament, but is inconsistent with the very first principles of morals, as it teaches that an act performed without any good intention or motive is yet holy. It seems to us liable also to this further objection that it represents man's obligation to love God to rest upon the fact that it will promote his happiness. This is involved in the principle that the choice made from this motive is a good choice, for it can only be good as it is in obedience to a moral obligation. If the obligation fulfilled is to God, then to fulfill it must be the motive. If the motive which prompts the choice have reference to himself, then the only obligation which he fulfills is to himself. It is a wise decision, but it is no holy act. If it be said that the excellence of the choice lies in the nature of the object chosen, it is giving up the question. For if the excellence of the object be the ground of the choice, it can act as a motive only by exciting a desire for it as excellent, which must needs be a holy desire, and if this determines the choice, then the man is holy before he chooses God as his portion, and the choice is the result and not the cause of his holiness. Or, if we call the desire itself the choice, which is an incorrect use of terms, still the case is the same. For the best definition that can be given of a holy being is that holy objects excite in him desire as soon as they are presented. If Adam therefore was filled with desire and pleasure as soon as his mind rested on the character of God, then he was created holy. As we remarked above, this theory that the first moral act is not performed from a holy motive, but from the constitutional desire of happiness, is not only inconsistent with the nature of a holy act, but affords no relief in the case. For the difficulty still remains why the character of God should appear desirable to one being and not to another, if both are called into existence in purus naturalibus. That Adam was created holy, that is, with a holy disposition, which existed prior to his first holy act, though necessarily destructive of the very first principle of the theory referred to, has been considered as a fixed point among Calvinists. We have already seen that Dr. Dwight did not think it necessary to prove it, because, he says, every man who believes the mind to be something more than ideas and exercises, and does not admit the doctrine of causality, will acknowledge it. 
President Edwards, in his work on original sin, has a whole chapter in which he endeavours to prove that our first parents were created in righteousness, or, as he expresses it, with holy principles and dispositions. The grand objection against this doctrine, he says, is this, that it is utterly inconsistent with the nature of virtue that it should be concreated with any person, because if so it must be by an act of God's absolute power, without our knowledge or concurrence, and that moral virtue in its very nature implieth the choice and consent of the moral agent, without which it cannot be virtue and holiness, that a necessary holiness is no holiness, and he quotes from Dr. Taylor of Norwich the words, Adam must exist before he be created, yea, he must exercise thought and reflection before he was righteous. To this he replies, in the first place I think it a contradiction to the nature of things as judged of by the common sense of mankind. It is agreeable to the sense of the minds of men in all ages not only that the fruit or effect of a good choice is virtuous, but the good choice itself from which that effect proceeds, Yea, and not only so, but also the antecedent good disposition, temper, or affection of the mind, from whence proceeds that good choice, is virtuous. This is the general notion, not that principles derive their goodness from actions, but that actions derive their goodness from the principles whence they proceed, and so that the act of choosing that which is good is no further virtuous than it proceeds from a good principle or virtuous disposition of mind, which supposes that a virtuous disposition of mind may be before a virtuous act of choice, and that, therefore, it is not necessary that there should first be thought, reflection, or choice before there can be any virtuous disposition. If the choice be first, before the existence of a good disposition of heart, what signifies that choice? There can, according to our natural notions, be no virtue of a choice which proceeds from no virtuous principle, but from mere self-love, ambition, or some animal appetite. Page 140. If there was a holy disposition before there was thought, reflection, or choice, Edwards most assuredly carried moral distinctions back of moral acts. That, by so doing, he carried them into the essential attributes of the soul, is an assertion founded on the assumption that what is not an act must be an essential attribute, which we believe few are prepared to admit. God has created man with various susceptibilities, dispositions, or tendencies of mind towards objects without himself. These tendencies are not necessarily real existences, entities, or essential attributes, for tendencies or habits may, as before remarked, be acquired as the skill of an artist or a proneness to any particular mental exercise. They may result from the relative state of all the essential attributes, and yet be no part of the soul themselves. Their nature, however, is confessedly as inconceivable as the nature of the soul, and no more so. And they are as necessarily assumed to account for the results which meet our view as the soul or any of its attributes. If a million of intelligent beings, the first moment they think of the character of God, are filled with desire and delight, it is as evident that they were created with a proneness or disposition to take pleasure in holiness, as it is that the hearts of mothers have an innate tendency to love their children, because they glow with delight the first moment they are given to them. Nothing, we think, but the most determined adherence to a speculative opinion can prevent any man acknowledging that it is as possible for the mind to be created with this instinctive love of holiness as with a disposition for any other specific class of objects. And we think, too, that the vast body of men will agree with President Edwards in thinking that such a disposition, being natural or from a kind of instinct implanted in the mind in its creation, 
is no objection to its being of a virtuous or moral character? Does the maternal instinct cease to be amiable because it is natural? Does a disposition to kindness and gentleness lose its character by being innate? Are not the instinctive love of justice, abhorrence of cruelty, admiration of what is noble, which God has implanted in our nature, objects of approbation? If our feelings and the general sense of mankind answer these questions in the affirmative, they certainly will decide that an innate disposition to love God, existing in the mind of Adam at the moment of his creation, does not lose its moral character by being innate. The common feelings and judgment of men, therefore, do carry moral distinctions back of acts of choice, and must do so unless we deny that virtue ever can commence, for there can, according to our natural notions, be no virtue in a choice which proceeds from no virtuous principle, but from mere self-love. If this be so, the very foundation of the objection that the common doctrine of regeneration destroys the responsibility of the sinner is taken away. This responsibility rests upon the fact that he stands in the relation of a rational and moral creature to God. He has all the attributes of a moral agent, understanding, conscience, and will. He has unimpaired the liberty of acting according to his own inclinations. His mind is not subject to any law of causation which determines his acts independently of himself. Motives, as external to the mind, have no influence, but as the mind itself, according to the laws of all rational creation, is affected by them and voluntarily admits their influence and yields to it. The responsibility of man, therefore, resting on the immutable obligations which bind him to love and obey God, and on the possession of all the attributes of moral agency, is not destroyed by his moral depravity, of which the want of a disposition to holiness is an integral part. He does not love God, not because there is any physical defect in his constitution, but because his moral taste is perverted by reason of sin. He is so corrupt that even infinite loveliness appears hateful to him. There can, in the nature of things, be no reason why an intelligent and moral being should be blind to moral excellence, excepting moral corruption. And if this be an excuse, then the more depraved, the less he is to blame. How he became thus depraved is another question, but it has nothing to do with the point before us, which is the nature of the inability which it involves to love God. He may have been born so, or he may have made himself so, it makes no difference as to this point. So long as this depravity is his own, his own moral character, it can furnish no excuse or palliation for not complying with the great command of the law and gospel. An object worthy of all affection is presented to his view, viz. the divine character. He is capable of intellectually apprehending this object. If blind to its loveliness, it is, in his own judgment and that of all men, his sin, it is the very height of corruption to view as unlovely what is the perfection of moral beauty. That men do labour under this moral blindness is one of the most frequently asserted doctrines of the Scriptures. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. These things, says our Saviour, will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. To know God is eternal life. We are said to be saved through knowledge. The gospel is hid to them that are lost. Their eyes are blinded. Light has shined into the hearts of those that believe. The saints of old prayed to have their minds illuminated, and Paul intercedes for his fellow Christians earnestly and frequently for this blessing, as the only possible means of their sanctification. 
This is so plain that President Edwards, in speaking on this subject, says, There is such a thing, if the scriptures are of any use to teach us anything, as a spiritual, supernatural understanding of divine things that is peculiar to the saints, and which those who are not saints know nothing of. Page 298 on the Affections. The cause of this blindness is sin, and therefore it is inexcusable. But if it exists, there is an evident necessity for such a change in the soul that it shall be brought to see this beauty of holiness, and from the constitution of our nature this change must precede the exercise of love. For how can we love that which we do not see? The affections must have an object, and that object must be apprehended in its true nature, in order to be truly loved. It is obvious, therefore, that regeneration, to be of a moral character at all, must consist in such a change as brings the soul into a state to see and love the beauty of holiness. It matters not what the change be called, a spiritual sense, or a taste, or disposition. It is as necessary as that an object should be seen in order to be loved. Now, it is evident that all this must be denied by those who make regeneration to consist in the act of loving God, who deny that there is any change prior in the order of nature to the exercise of love. For if the sinner is blind to God's loveliness, it is absolutely impossible that he should love it until he is brought to see it. It may be said that this is to render the sinner's case absolutely hopeless. So it is. And they do but delude and mock him who represent it otherwise. It is thus the Bible represents it. It tells him that the natural man cannot know the things of the Spirit of God. And it is moreover necessary that the sinner should be brought to feel that his case, as far as he himself is concerned, is absolutely hopeless. That he may be brought to fall with his blind and wicked heart at the feet of sovereign mercy and cry, Lord, save me, or I perish. But does this make the sinner excusable? Not unless his sin is his excuse. It is this and this alone which prevents his perception of the loveliness of God, and therefore the more complete his blindness, the greater his loathsomeness and guilt. The two sentiments of complete helplessness and of entire blameworthiness are perfectly consistent and are ever united in Christian experience. The believer feels them every day. He knows that it is his duty at once to love God as purely and fervently and constantly as do the saints made perfect. Yet he feels that no mere efforts of his own, no use of means, no presentation of motives, no summoning of his powers will ever enable him to raise his carnal heart to heaven. Does this free him from a sense of guilt? No, he covers his face with both his hands and bows down in the dust and cries, Behold, I am vile. Have mercy on me, O Lord, and create within me a clean heart. That the denial of the sinner's blindness to the holiness of God is involved in the theory of regeneration under consideration is perfectly evident, and is not, we presume, denied. If the mere choice of God as the supreme portion of the soul is regeneration, and the performance of this act constitutes the change, then, of course, no previous change is admitted to be necessary to enable him to make the choice, no opening of his eyes to see the moral excellence of the object he is to choose. No production of any sense of its loveliness, the choice itself, is all that is demanded, and for this everything is present that the act requires, the object, the capacity of viewing it in its true moral excellence, and the motive whence the choice is to proceed. For he need not choose God from any holy motive or intention, which would be to make holiness precede moral action. The simple desire of happiness is all that is required. 
The character of this first act does not depend on its motive. It is wholly, though performed merely from the desire of self-gratification. This is a conclusion from which our minds instinctively revolt, and which, Edwards says, is contrary to the notions of men. It is, however, a conclusion which is legitimate and acknowledged, and being, in our view, a complete reductio ad absurdum, the system is fairly, in our humble apprehension, felo de se. Dr. Cox asks whether it is not intrinsically absurd that a man should be regenerated before he does his duty. We think the absurdity is all the other way, that he should do his duty without being regenerated that he should love God without having any proper perception of his character, or that an unholy soul should have this perception of the beauty of holiness. It appears to us a contradiction in terms to say that a holy object can be viewed as excellent and desirable by a carnal mind, for a holy mind is best defined by saying that it perceives and relishes the beauty of holiness. It is inconceivable to us, therefore, that any sinner should love God without this previous change, accepted on one or the other of these two grounds, that all his acts are created in him and that he is really no agent at all, or that an act proceeding from mere self-love is holy, both which contradict what to us are primary principles or intuitive truths. But how is it that regeneration precedes the exercise of love, as the opening of the eyes precedes sight, as a sense of the beautiful precedes the emotion of beauty, as the maternal instinct precedes maternal love? As it is impossible for a man to have his eyes open in the daytime without seeing, so is it impossible for a man to be regenerated without delighting in God. Yet opening the eyes is not seeing, nor is regeneration delighting in God. What the metaphysical nature of this change is, no one can tell. All the soul can say is, whereas I was blind, now I see. What once appeared repulsive and foolishness now appears supremely desirable and excellent. What once excited enmity now calls forth love. What once was irksome and difficult is now easy and delightful. To say that these exercises themselves constitute the change, and the whole change, is to say that a wicked man is suddenly transformed in all his views, feelings, and conduct without any reason for it. And to refer all to the immediate operations of the spirit is to make man a machine or mere instrument on which a mysterious hand plays what tune it pleases, to the delight or torment of the conscious but passive subject. There is still another point. Dr. Cox speaks of this certain kind of principle as a mysterious gratuity, with which the receiver has nothing to do, a something inserted in the soul in some magic manner to influence his exercises, but which forms no part of his character. We are persuaded that a fundamental difference as to the nature of agency and human liberty lies at the foundation of all such objections. We are as yet only fighting in the dark. The real turning point is yet in the background. We do not mean that it is intentionally kept there, but that these objections have not even the semblance of force if, what is yet considered common ground, the Calvinistic theory of the will is retained. Was it a mere mysterious gratuity without moral character for him that Adam was created in the image of God with holy principles and dispositions? Were these not voluntary principles? Was he not free in all his exercises of love determined by them? A disposition is not the less voluntary because it is innate. The affections are all voluntary, although concreated with us. Is a man less free in loving himself because self-love is a constitutional propensity? 
does a mother love her child against her will because she acts agreeably to her nature does not the disposition so to do enter into her character if this be true with regard even to constitutional propensities it is still more obviously true with respect to moral disposition whether originally implanted or restored in regeneration there is a continual play upon the double sense of the word voluntary when the faculties of the soul are reduced to understanding and will it is evident that the latter includes all the affections in this sense all liking or disliking desiring or being averse to etc are voluntary or acts of the will but when we speak of the understanding will and affections the word will includes much less it is the power of the soul to come to a determination to fix its choice on some object of desire these two meanings are distinct though they may relate only to different states of the same faculty in the latter sense will and desire are not always coincident a man may desire money and not will to take it or make it an object of pursuit he may not fix his choice upon it the will is here determined by some other desire of greater force desire of doing right for example when we speak of a volition of a choice of a decision or determination of the will the word will is used in the restricted sense a man may have many objects of desire before his mind the decision which the will makes among them or its selection is its choice there are a thousand things capable of ministering to our happiness riches honor sensual pleasure the service of god the selection which the soul makes is made by the will in the narrower sense this is a voluntary act in one sense of the term but in another the desire itself which the soul has for these objects and not merely its decision or choice is a voluntary act for according to edwards all choosing refusing approving disapproving liking disliking directing commanding inclining being averse a being pleased or displeased with are acts of the will in this sense all the affections and all desires are voluntary exercises whether constitutional or not and not merely the decision to which they lead hence self-love the love of children the love of society the desire of esteem are all voluntary although all springing from native tendencies of the mind this distinction between these different senses of the word will although frequently made and formally stated is yet time after time lost sight of in discussions of this nature which gives rise to endless confusion the word is often used in one sense in the premises of an argument and in the other in the conclusion how often is it said that a man can love god if he will what does this mean if will here be used in its narrower sense this is not true the affections no more obey a determination of the mind than the affections do a man can no more will to love to hate to be pleased or displeased than he can will to be joyful or sorrowful gay or sad or even hot or cold at any given moment but if the word be taken in its larger sense as including the affections then the proposition is identical it is saying a man can love god if he does love god and when dr cox says there are some men who teach that a man has no ability to believe even if he has the inclination the very statement is absurd for if the mind is inclined to embrace the truth in its real character it does believe although the advocates of the theory that morality attaches only to acts of choice lay down as the foundation of their doctrine edwards's definition of the will as given above yet it is plain that in a multitude of cases they confine acts of choice to acts of the will in the restricted sense 
Thus, the desire of money becomes avarice, they say, only when the will comes in and decides on money as the main object of pursuit. Self-esteem is not pride, until the will decides on preferring our own claims unduly. In all such cases, it is the will as the faculty of decision between different objects of desire that is intended. It is to acts of the will in this restricted sense, and to the states of mind thence resulting, and not to voluntary acts, in the broad sense of President Edwards, that morality is made to attach. Hence, in the case of Adam, the desire excited by a view of the divine affections has no moral character. That belongs only to the act of the will which fixes on God as the chief good. And the first holy act of a newborn soul is not the desire which rises in view of the divine being, but the act of the will by which he is chosen as a portion. Hence, in the distinction between constitutional and voluntary propensities, the social affections, the love of children, desire of esteem, etc., are referred to the former class, and are not considered as voluntary, yet in the broad sense of the word will, assumed as the foundation of the theory, according to which all inclining or being averse, all being pleased or displeased with, are acts of the will. They are as truly voluntary as others. Now, when it is asserted that no disposition is of a moral character, except so far as it depends on choice or preference, and that all morality lies in the will, the whole meaning turns on the sense in which the word will is taken. If taken in its broader sense, this would be admitted, if in the restricted sense we should deny it altogether. Those who make the assertion, doubtless take it in the latter, for they say that all that precedes the decision of the soul, its fixing on some object of desire as its chief portion, is neither sinful nor holy, that holiness consists in the selection of God, and sin in the choice of the world, and that there is nothing sinful nor holy but these primary or ultimate choices and the subordinate acts resulting from them. But it is clear that the term voluntary applies not only to such acts of choice, but to all exercises of the affections or desires preliminary thereto. No one would say that the disposition to love ourselves or our children depends on choice, and yet these dispositions are properly and truly voluntary. We cannot love otherwise than voluntarily. When, therefore, these gentlemen use the word voluntary, it is in reference to the acts of the will in the restricted sense, excluding the spontaneous exercises of the native propensities of our nature. They, of course, deny that Adam was created holy. The spontaneous rising of desire in his mind to God was neither holy nor unholy. His moral character commenced with the first act of choice, that is, with his selection of God from among the various sources of happiness as his chief good. Here lies one great point of difference between them and common Calvinists. President Edwards maintains clearly that Adam was holy before this act of choice, yea, before he exercised thought or reflection. And he says that it is according to our natural notions of things that there could be no virtue in this choice unless it was determined by a virtuous disposition. The common judgment of men is that moral character belongs to the desire of moral objects. The morality lies in its nature independently of its origin. Its being from a kind of instinct does not deny its moral character. The desire of holiness is holy no matter how it rises in the mind. If this be so, a similar tendency of mind and a similar desire, if produced in our mind by the power of the spirit in regeneration, is not something inserted in the soul without influence on our character. It constitutes us holy 
as truly as Adam was wholly at his first creation, though much of sin may yet remain. It is indeed mysterious gratuity, the scriptures call it grace, but it is still ours, from its nature, voluntary and active. It is an inclination of the heart, and, as Dr. Bellamy remarks, an involuntary inclination of the heart is a contradiction in terms. He uses the word voluntary in its larger sense, as Edwards does, and not merely in that which applies to a decision or selection from among different objects of desire. With him, all spontaneous exercises of the mind are voluntary, self-love, the love of children, and all other similar affections. A disposition, therefore, to these or any other exercises existing prior to the exercises, in his view, does not destroy their character as voluntary, nor their morality, if they have reference to moral objects. This depends upon their nature, not their origin. We have already remarked that the opposite system destroys the moral character of the first act in reference to moral objects, in Adam and in regeneration. We are ready to admit that as the desire of a holy object is from its nature holy, so the choice of such an object as holy is from its nature good. But it is inconceivable that holiness as such can be chosen without a previous apprehension of its real excellence and desire for it as such, for the choice is but the determination of the desire. If therefore moral character be denied to the antecedent desire, the choice loses its moral character also. It cannot be confined to the act of choice, for there can, in fact, be no choice of a holy object as such, but from a desire for it in its true character, and this is a holy desire, and precedes the choice. If self-love be only so far the motive of this choice, that it prompts to the choice but not determines it, what, we ask, does determine it? There are but two answers to this question. The one is that the will determines itself, i.e. the choice is made in indifference, and has clearly no moral character, or it is determined by a desire of the object as such, not mere desire of happiness, for that only prompts the choice, not determines it. And then the whole theory is relinquished, for here is the desire of a holy object, not merely as a means of happiness, but for the object as holy, which must needs be a holy desire, and being antecedent to the choice, would be, according to the theory, anterior to the commencement of holiness." The truth is that this whole system is a forced and unnatural union between Arminian philosophy and Calvinistic facts, a union which can neither be peaceful nor lasting. Nor is this the first time that it has been attempted. The favourite principle of the opposers of the Augustinian doctrines in all ages has been that moral character can only belong to acts of choice, and of course that no such thing as original righteousness or original sin is possible or conceivable that any other influence in regeneration than that of moral suasion, by which one man is led to make a good choice, which another man, under the same influence might refuse to make, is inconsistent with moral agency, that the doctrines of election and perseverance of the saints, presupposing that of efficacious grace, must necessarily be untrue. The first departures from these doctrines have commenced by adopting the main principle and endeavouring to reconcile it as far as possible with the facts involved in the doctrines themselves, viz. that all men do sin with absolute certainty the moment they become moral agents, that the influence of the Spirit is infallibly efficacious, and that all whom God has chosen certainly believe and attain eternal life. But less than a generation has been commonly sufficient to break the connection and leave the philosophical principle undisputed master of the field. 
that this principle is inconsistent with the doctrine of original righteousness is formally admitted. That it involves the denial of original sin, as this doctrine has been commonly held among Augustinians, is equally clear. According to the prevalent doctrine on this subject, original sin consists first in the imputation of Adam's sin. This, it seems, has been long exploded. Secondly, in the want of original righteousness. This is gone too, for there never was any such thing. And thirdly, in the corruption of nature, that is a tendency to do what God has prohibited, existing prior to all acts of choice and independently of them, and now this is gone. There is no such tendency to sin, as can be considered a moral disposition. Although this article has already swollen far beyond our expectations, we cannot pass this subject without a single remark on the charge of physical depravity. The futility and unfairness of the same charge, as it regards the subject of regeneration, we have endeavoured to expose above. As this rests on precisely the same grounds, it must stand or fall with the other. If there may be moral principles prior to moral acts, as we think must be assumed in the case of Adam, or make the commencement of holiness impossible, then there is not a shadow of ground for this charge. Nor is it the Calvinistic doctrine that there is a specific propensity to sin, analogous to the holy disposition implanted in the heart of Adam, connatural with the soul of man. None such need be assumed, and none such is believed to exist. The mere absence of a native tendency to God leaves the soul in moral confusion and ruin. There is no positive infusion of wickedness. The essential attributes and constitutional propensities are there and nothing more, but they are there without a principle of moral order and subordination. There is no presiding spirit to turn them to the service of God. The result of this absence is all manner of evil, and a tendency to all this evil lies in the very state of the soul, and exists prior to any of its moral acts. Does the withholding this predisposition to holiness from a being to whom all the essential attributes of his nature are left unimpaired make God the author of sin? then must he be accused of being the author of all sin that results from the abandonment of the reprobate and of all that by the utmost exertion of power he could prevent. Nor is it more difficult to reconcile this fact, that God should withhold from the fallen race of man those communications which resulted in the innate tendency to holiness which filled the soul of Adam, with the divine justice and goodness that it is the admitted fact that he has brought and is still bringing the countless millions of the human family into existence under circumstances so unfavourable that all without exception incur the penalty of eternal death at the first moment of moral agency, and that moment arriving, too, at the first dawn of intellect when the first faint flushes of moral feeling rise to the soul. If this be no penalty, we know not what is. To be placed under a law, says Coleridge, aids to reflection, page 168, the difficulty of obeying and the consequences of not obeying, which are both infinite, and to have momentarily to struggle with this difficulty, and to live in momently hazard of these consequences, if this be no punishment. Words have no correspondence with thoughts, and thoughts are but shadows of each other, shadows that own no substance for their antitype. Of such an outrage on common sense, Taylor, Bishop Jeremy, was incapable. He himself calls it a penalty. He admits that, in effect, it is a punishment." It is a penalty too, according to this theory, without transgression, a punishment without a crime. We cannot see, therefore, that anything is gained by the new theory over the old doctrine, which represents our race as having enjoyed a full and fair and favourable probation in their first parent. 
and as being regarded and treated as an apostate race on account of his rebellion, so that the withholding these divine communications, which resulted in the first man, in the moral image of his maker, is a penal evil, from which, it is true, utter ruin results, but it is the ruin not of innocent, but of fallen human beings. This doctrine involves no mysterious confusion of the identity of the race with that of Adam, and no transfer of moral character from him to us. His act was personally his own, and only his. It is ours on the representative principle, which is recognized not only by Dr. Hopkins and his followers distinctly, but by Arminians and Pelagians, and is so clearly taught by the fact that the race fell when Adam fell, that it is admitted in reality even by those who formally deny it. But to return to our subject. This theory not only overthrows the doctrines which we have just mentioned, but it throws the spirit's influences almost entirely out of view. We are not speaking of the opinions of its advocates, but of the tendency of the theory. According to their views, regeneration consists in the choice of God as the supreme portion of the soul. This requires that the soul should view him as supremely desirable. This the sinner is not only naturally but morally able to do, for his corruption does not blind him to the excellence of holiness or its adaptedness to promote his happiness. To secure this happiness is the only impulse or motive necessary to make this choice, and he is urged to make it, assured that if he will summon all his powers to the effort, the result by the grace of God may follow. We think the grace of God acts a part scarcely more conspicuous in all this scheme than it does in the enumeration of the titles of an European monarch. There is no blindness to the excellence of the object of choice to be removed, no holy motive is necessary for the grand decision, all that is required is a practical conviction that it will be for the sinner's interests. Firmly as these brethren may believe in the necessity of the spirit's interference, it is evident that necessity is left out of view almost entirely in their theory. Accordingly, when they come to describe the process of this great change, the sinner is the only agent brought to view. He is to consider, ponder, and decide, for all which he absolutely needs no assistance, though it may be graciously afforded. This mode of representation stands in strong contrast with the language of Scripture, in those passages in which we are said to be born of the Spirit, to be created anew in Christ Jesus, to experience the workings of the exceeding greatness of the power of God, and many other of a similar character. As to this point which Dr. Cox thinks so intrinsically absurd, and about which he says so much, whether man is passive in regeneration, it will be seen that, for its own sake, it does not merit a moment's discussion. It depends entirely on the previous question. If regeneration be that act of the soul by which it chooses God for its portion, there is an end of all debate on the subject, for no one will maintain that the soul is passive in acting. But if there be any change in the moral state of the soul prior to its turning unto God, then it is proper to say that the soul is passive as to that particular point, that is, that the Holy Spirit is the author and the soul the subject of the change. For all that is meant by the soul's being passive is that it is not the agent of the change in question. Its immediate and delightful turning unto God is its own act. The state of mind which leads to this act is produced directly by the Spirit of God. The whole question is whether any such anterior change is necessary, whether a soul polluted and degraded by sin, or in scripture language, carnal, needs any change in its moral taste before it can behold the loveliness of the divine character. For that this view must precede the exercise of affection, we presume will not be denied. 
If this point be decided, the propriety of using the word passive to denote that the soul is the subject and not the agent of the change in question need not give us much trouble. Sure it is that this change is in Scripture always referred to the Holy Spirit. It is the soul that repents, believes, hopes, and fears, but it is the Holy Spirit that regenerates. He is the author of our faith and repentance by inducing us to act, but no man regenerates himself. The soul, though essentially active, is still capable of being acted upon. It receives impressions from sensible objects, from other spirits, and from the Holy Ghost. In every sensation there is an impression made by some external object, and the immediate knowledge which the mind takes of the impression. As to the first point, it is passive, or the subject. As to the second, it is active, or the agent. These two are indeed inseparably connected, and so are regeneration and conversion. It is even allowable to say that the mind is passive, considered as the recipient of any impression, no matter how communicated. Coleridge says, In attention we keep the mind passive, in thought we rouse it into activity. In the former we submit to an impression, we keep the mind steady in order to receive the stamp. Page 252. Whether this is technically wretched, philosophically wrong, and theologically false, or not, we do not pretend to say. All that we say is that it is perfectly intelligible, and perfectly according to established usage to speak of the mind as passive when considered as the subject of an impression. And if the Holy Spirit does make such an impression on the mind, or exert such an influence as induces it immediately to turn to God, then it is correct to say that it is passive in regeneration, though active in conversion. However, this is a very subordinate point. The main question is whether there is not a holy relish, taste or principle produced in the soul prior, in the order of nature, to any holy act of the soul itself. If Dr. Cox can show this to be intrinsically absurd, we shall give up the question of passivity without a moment's demur. To relinquish the other point, however, will cost us a painful struggle. It will be the giving up the main point in debate between the friends and opposers of the doctrines of grace from Augustine to the present day. It will be the renunciation not only of a favourite principle of old Calvinists, but of one of the fundamental principles of the theology of Edwards, Bellamy, Dwight, and, as we believe, of the great body of the New England clergy. It will be the renunciation of what the Church Universal has believed to be the scriptural doctrine of original righteousness, original sin, and efficacious grace. It will be the rejection of that whole system of mingled sovereignty and love, which has been the foundation, for ages, of so many hopes and of so much blessedness to the people of God. And all for what? Because it has been discovered that what is not an act is an entity, that to suppose the existence of moral disposition prior to moral action is making morality a substance. As we are incapable of seeing the truth of these axioms, and believe their assumption to be encumbered with all the difficulties above referred to, we are not disposed to renounce on their behalf doctrines which have for ages been held dear by the best portion of the Christian Church. Dr. Cox demands what has been the moral history of these doctrines. It would require more time and space than we now command fully to answer this question. Not to enter on questionable ground, however, we would refer him for an answer to the history of the Reformation. These doctrines were held sacred by all those men who were God's great instruments in that blessed work and are incorporated in the confessions of all the Reformed churches. 
We would point him to the history of the English Puritans and Nonconformists, to the Puritans of New England, from the time of their landing down to a late period in their history, and to the present opinions of the great body of their descendants. We would refer him to any age or any church, peculiarly distinguished for genuine piety, for there is scarcely one of the doctrines which he has impaled in his introduction which does not enter into the faith of the great body of evangelical Christians. End of section 2